and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. After yesterday's marathon conversation with Tom Nichols, first-time guest of the Remnant, I craved that 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 sweet <laughs> comfort of home, which is none other than Chris Starwalt, brother Starwalt. Welcome back to the Remnant, colleague at AI, colleague at the Dispatch, former colleague of sorts at, at Fox, um, News Nation pundit impresario or something to that effect. I think that's correct. Uh, uh, how you doing, my friend? Man, I'm living the dream. I'm glad to be just a simple country pundit here to help you to 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 a warm bath that you can slide into. I have not listened to the Tom Nichols episode, but uh, I, I bet it's a bell ringer. So we went 54 minutes talking about succession and Soviet ideology. And then at like the 54 minute mark, I said, all right, so quickly, I want to move to this one other topic about a certain branch of, of never Trumpers who I think are kind of cheap dates or Ooh. words to that effect. And, and it was on 50 minutes later, <laughs> we're like, all right, we better wrap this up. Um, no, but it was all collegial and fine, and it was good. You know, I asked you a long time ago, shortly after I joined AEI, I asked you the question, which was, to what degree will the migration of conservatives from the Republican Party into the Democratic Party, will it be significant? Will it be an important number? And I, I basically shared your assessment at the time, which is... Yeah, not really. There'll be some. There's like, you know, the Max Boot, Jen Rubin, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's, a, there's a handful, but that it wouldn't be significant. Um, but as time goes on, I think pundits, thought leaders, whatever terrible term you want to use, do follow the voters. And the number of college-educated sort of right-of-center voters, uh, if they are out of the Republican Party for the near future, at least, uh, there is incentive to follow them there. Yeah. I mean, uh, part of my argument about the cheap date thing was just simply that, you know, I come from a part of his, we, we don't need to get into it, but I'm, I'm deep in the weeds. I've decided since nobody else will, <laughs> as it says in the Talmud, if you won't defend neoconservative, neoconservatism, who will? I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, my first job in Washington was working for Wattenberg, Ben Wattenberg, and he was one of the founders of the Coalition for Democratic Majority, which was the precursor to the Democratic Leadership Council. They actually formed a real faction within the Democratic Party trying to move it to the center. And they had various success and failures and whatever and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of thought that Bill Kristol and those guys, the game that they were playing, and I don't mean to belittle it, but like, but their strategy was... Um, to sort of have that similar beachhead in the Democratic Party. And I thought it was going to be fraught and probably fail, but I thought they were going to kind of try. And I've seen very, 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 very little evidence that any of the former conservative or still conservative, um, but anti-Trump folks, who obviously I have many sympathies with, seen very little evidence that any of them are trying to do anything to convince the Democratic Party that it needs to uh, check itself before it wrecks itself in terms of doing things that make it, that give people permission to vote for Trump, right? You know, like 
just a few sister soldier moments, something. And I, and I think it's sort of an interesting thing that like, apparently the institutional incentive structure doesn't exist for that kind of faction stuff, which a lot of our poli sci friends told us we were entering the era of, of faction. Steve Tellis, um, public choice guy made this argument. Uh, Luke Thompson made this argument in national review a long time ago about how the GOP was no longer an ideational party. It was a coalitional party, just like the Democrats. And therefore you need to leverage your power. We were supposed to see a lot of that in the Senate and the house. We just haven't seen any of no, We haven't seen that. We haven't seen zero, but we haven't seen much. Well, right now, the Republican Party is not very interesting to me uh, because the Republican Party is predominantly arranged around the idea of protecting Donald Trump. Uh, and some of those people are Trump diehard, hardcore people uh, and who the worse, the better. And then there are others who th there's a funny thing that's happened to the Republican Party which is a system and a idea arranged around protecting an incumbent or protecting a front runner, uh, whether in the actual nominating contests or just the attitude of the party is working, right? Uh, but it didn't work. It, it didn't work for Jeb Bush in 2016, but it has worked really well for Donald Trump. And the majority of Republicans or half of Republicans anyway, see the for various reasons, the need or desire to protect Donald Trump uh, and carry him through as their as their standard bearer. The Democratic Party is very interesting to me right now. Uh, and that is because they're trying to, you know, we talked a lot about the tragedy, Joe Biden, the tragedy of the Georgia Senate runoffs of 2021 and Joe Biden's presidency and how a presidency that had been uh, envisioned as a caretaker presidency uh, that would return things to normal and work in a bipartisan fashion uh, was transfigured in a matter of weeks into historians telling Joe Biden that, will you be FDR? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's more like LBJ. We'll see how it goes. And because of the difference of two Senate seats. And I watched that happen. I watched the whole calamities around the Green New Deal and all of that stuff. But I look at the Democratic Party today and I see since the passage of uh, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, a bunch of markers along the trail. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did an interview woof, with the New York Times in which she said, the Democrats were so mad at me. I don't know why they were so mad at me. But, you know, now they're now they're OK. I guess they're pretty cool. And it's like, well, because you stopped primarying people and started sucking up. That's what you did. That, that When you went to the Met Gala looking like a Chick-fil-A bag, that was when it was like, oh, okay, you, you want this. You want to be part of the, the team, uh, sort of like Marjorie Taylor Greene did on the Republican side. So what I observe in the Democratic Party is they're grappling with what to do with basically Dwight Eisenhower's coalition which is affluent, educated suburbanites and non-white voters. Uh, while uh, Donald Trump has the old, what's left of the old New Deal coalition, which centers around working class whites. And the tension between those two things, watching Democrats figure out the tension between those two things, uh, of more moderate, more affluent suburban voters, and usually uh, less, uh, less wealthy uh, and uh, urban uh, people of color.
sidebar, and I should tell people, you mentioned at the beginning that you were simply a simple country pundit mm-hmm. um, without the audience knowing that not only is your name on the little Chiron here, Cletus Snow, um, which obviously was the, the, the really the moral center of smoking the bandit. Exactly. You actually look quite a bit like you are about to make your summation to the jury about how your client could never have robbed that 7-Eleven. I say, I say, <laughs> I say, I don't know too much about the law. Remember Unfrozen <laughs> Caveman Lawyer, one of Phil Hartman's greats. I, I aspire to be the Cletus Snow to your bandit. I just aspire, I, I want to be in the convoy, running along behind you. I wish I had a cool basset hound. Uh, and that, that's, that's my, my goal. Um, I, I'm flattered by the mere suggestion of it. Um, I don't think the fair Jessica, either of our Jessica's want to be Sally Field. Back, back in the day where you could uh, abduct a woman from her wedding, nickname her Frog, and, and then enjoy Congress in a glade during uh, a pulled off from a high-speed chase. That was not the sidebar I intended. I just wanted to inform you. <laughs> this is an actual serious question. I like your formulation about the Eisenhower coalition. But of course, as is my duty here to find fault with clever things, um, I started thinking about, okay, well, where does that analogy fall down? One way to bond its benefit, it falls down because the non-whites share of the population is much bigger than it was when Eisenhower was um, around. And then the way where I think it probably falls down in the opposite direction is my hunch is, and this is the question I actually have for you, is how, what was Eisenhower's share of the military vote? I mean, I, I assume it had to be gigundous, but at the same time, military guys are like perfectly capable of disliking generals who didn't get them their ammo or boots or warm socks on time kind of thing. And I could see them having a much more realistic view of Eisenhower than, than the sort of view that I have, you know, guy who successfully invaded Europe kind of thing. But I've never looked at that. Did we have numbers on that? Do we, do we, don't, we, don't have, uh, an, we don't have as much data uh, as I would like. But, and it's been a long, t- uh, but it's been a long time and it's been a long time since I've looked, but uh, Eisenhower was extraordinarily popular. Uh, and the other thing we have to remember is that we now ha- are developing a kind of a warrior caste in which certain families in certain regions uh, produce uh, the large share of our uh, military Whereas in 1952 and 1956, you know, the, the, um, the differences between the veteran population and the general population among males was very low, right? Uh, because of how many people had been in the military and uh, the Korean conflict and the draft was still ongoing. So the, the Republicans fooling with contradictory dovishness uh, is when we look at how the Republican coalition could break down. So if Donald Trump is um, William Jennings Bryan, which is which has been my thought since about 2016, 2015. Part of your problem, though, is whenever you're writing a book about something and then you start seeing it. Every, so you were writing a wonderful book about populism and with a lot of focus on William Jennings Bryan. Right at a time, there was... A lot of populism in the air. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. It's true. But the, the reason that I wrote the book was because I saw it 
uh, um, but Brian nominated thrice by the Democratic Party, brought in a new chunk of voters, right? So the Democrats had only gotten into the White House twice with the same guy and on a very fluky period and that had a lot to do with an economic, uh, successive economic crises. And uh, the Brian phenomenon was that a part of the country, the upper Midwest, that had expanded rapidly, um, dominated by Scandinavian, some German, um, but the Scandinavian progressive farmers Nebraska, the Dakotas, uh, and that part of the country. Brian, who had been, who had come from a established, well-established family in Illinois, went out to Nebraska, and he was the the tribune of the people, the scion of all this stuff. These prairie populists brought all this energy into the dead Democratic Party. They were excited about it because the Democratic Party was basically, if you want to think about it, Tammany Hall and uh unreconstructed Confederates, right? You had the Deep South with Jim Crow now in place and you had big cities of the Northeast and that wasn't enough to win. The prairie populace promised the possibility of victory again. For Republicans, their fetishization of white working class voters, their obsession with basically where I'm from, right? Their obsession with the Ohio Valley, uh, the Rust Belt, the industrial Midwest, Appalachia, and that part. And if you look at the astonishing success, my, uh, my home state of West Virginia is about to have not super majorities, but super, but uber majorities. They're going to be in the state Senate. There'll probably only be two or three Democrats left. Uh, and the House will be, you know, 90% Republican. And they will elect a Republican governor and probably a Republican senator. And it's like that. So the success of Republicans in those places, they're so gratified by their success in those places because they are they are feeling the wind in their sails from the outrage of older, mostly male white dudes from places where Democrats had previously dominated. The problem is, and this is where the Brian analogy comes in, the cost is too high. Right. The cost of the cost of sucking up to those voters constantly is too high. And I think on foreign policy, you see the the contradiction. Right. Joe Biden's a warmonger. Yeah, but he's also very weak. Uh, he's also terribly weak because he's not doing enough with China. And it's this and it's and, and you you hear the arguments break down uh, and the incoherence come in very quickly. The the. Over reliance on one demographic group is, uh, it's like your stock portfolio. You want to divert, as, as Wu-Tang Financial said, you got to diversify your bonds. And you can't have uh, one group driving all the time because there is a tolerance in the Atlanta suburbs, the Houston suburbs, the uh, cities of Florida. There's, there is a tolerance for, yeah, okay, this is a lot of boob bait for Bubba's. This is a lot of sucking up dumb stuff but we're still basically getting what we want in other places. As you pull out the Jenga blocks of the policy tower underneath the suburban voters who get to decide every election, you can topple the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the, this is what parties are supposed to do, right? right. Is, is, is manage coalitions so that everybody gets somewhere between 50% and 80% of a loaf for the things that they care about for the most part, most, maybe not their number one thing, but they'll get a lot of their number two thing or 
they'll, they'll get a hundred percent of their three and four thing, but it's portfolio management. And this is the Madisonian point about it. This is the Van Buren, you know, point. And, and the, the, the sort of political, and it's interesting. I just, I really dislike Michael Lind with a, a pretty intense passion and, and have consistently for 30 years, but he's not dumb. And he wrote um, an interesting piece about the left's monoculture mm-hmm. sort of pushed by um, sort of foundations, universities, the DEI statement stuff where you all have to swear to do exactly the sort of the same thing and march in lockstep ideologically uh, the sort of transmission belt that you get from academia to, through MSNBC, through Jacobin, where every, any, you know, there's no room for any Christopher Hitchens over there anymore. Right. And the problem with the problem with monocultures is that at the top is that the actual coalitions and parties are not monocultures. And, um, and so the, the message, I mean, it's funny, this Enrique Oterio guy who, who was fantastic on dance fever. He, he's the proud boys guy who just got sentenced to 22 years. And you, and, and just like that, you've already defeated me in pop culture references <laughs> with the Danny Terrio reference. And so I, 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 I snap my suspenders at you and salute. Uh, um, maybe it was his kid brother or his nephew, or something like that. But, which would be a great story. If, if the press didn't catch that, then someone needs to be fired. But, um, he had this great line I saw in this CNN piece where he says, look, every single media outlet I turned to told me my actions were justified. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm sure to a certain extent that's true, you know? Um, and um, I listened to, for reasons having to do with original sin, you know, this, I listened to, I watch a lot of morning Joe. God bless you. They spent nearly a half hour this morning, basically writing the, the, preface to the paperback addiction of edition of your book about the media in that they're there they're looking at these numbers about breakdown in trust and rising in polarization that we've chewed on a zillion times and um i defecate you negatory they're like they do this whole spiel about how the media is responsible for this cable news is responsible started with rush limbaugh but then it became part of cable news all over the place and you're like oh my gosh there's like you know, there must be a siren going off in the control room. Self-awareness, self-awareness. They're going to get up and walk <laughs> out. They're going to say, and therefore we conclude this. Right, and therefore I am going to take out my suppoku blade. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and then they go to that Donnie Deutsch guy and Donnie Deutsch says, you know, says, I think that was brilliant, Joe. Great, great, you know, summation. But, you know, it's funny when I go out and I talk to people and tell them I'm going to come on MSNBC or I'm going to come on this show, they say, why do you bother? You're only talking to the people who already agree with you. Oh, and I'm like, whoa, all whoa. right. Okay. I like where this is going, you know, you know, tell me more. And, um, Scarborough is like, I could not disagree with you. more. <laughs> I think on this show, we have a diversity of this and a blah, blah, blah of that. And we criticize Biden as you know, <laughs> like, it's like, no, you don't. I mean, you really, I mean, I'm, I'm too close of a student of this, but they stopped having people like Noah Rothman on and, and John Pedortz years ago. There has not been a serious conservative push. There've been some serious conservatives on to talk about a book or talk about a topic where they agree with the person. You know, that's how I was on Morning Joe when my book came out. But the idea that they're going to question the premises of Joe's position on things or the panel's position on things, it's seriatim, you know, agreement. And I think this is the problem that both parties have. I'm just to tie it back is that at the level of message formation, it's all give your animal spirits all the red meat they want and don't care about the people at the margins who are the difference between a minority and a majority at the polls. 
one of the problems with the trend towards the infantilization of the American voter, uh, you in a recent episode with uh, great West Virginian uh, Robert George, uh, in which you uh, he you guys talked about uh, the age of faith, the age of reason, and the age of feeling, and how we live in the age of feeling. And I am reading out of uh, the uh, book of Goldberg to say, um, people don't make good decisions when they're very angry, right? So what we've done, we finally found a way when, the, when social media first began, the problem was we couldn't track sentiment. We could track engagement, but we didn't know, we couldn't do sarcasm. We couldn't figure out irony. We couldn't whatever. And I was part of efforts uh, in, at the end of the, of the teens or uh, in the early teens and the end of the aughts. Okay, how are we going to find out what people want to say? We finally have a way to interact with the audience in a, in a massive scale. How are we going to do it? Well, you couldn't do it, right? Um, and what we have done, though, is over time, the audience has figured out how to express uh, the new language of uh, social media and being online. People have figured out how to do it. Tribes have formed in that space. But we've gotten better at our market research of figuring out, okay, what do they want? What do people actually want at this particular moment? If the next step is to say, and, and the infantilization problem is not a product of social media. It just makes it so much easier to infantilize, uh, which is to say, look at all the bad things that have happened to you. Look at all the unfairness in your life. Look at all of the problems that you've dealt with. And that includes social media. Look at what social media is doing to you. And it's, I'm not surprised that you're angry and I'm not surprised that whatever. If we are to succeed and survive as a republic, what is necessary now is for people to say, well, in the words of Lao Tzu, it sucks to suck. Uh, <laughs> and I, I hope you get over it. I hope you get better. I hope the things that have afflicted you and your family and your lives uh, take a more salubrious course. But we have grown up work to do here in the small but important space that is government and politics. And I see lots of signs that that is happening and can happen. Um, but the idea that external force, one of the things that's frustrating to me about the coverage of the January 6th uh, trials, and most certainly Donald Trump's trials, is that the criminal justice system is a sufficient answer to the problem, right? That, it, that Donald Trump, that, well, once he's convicted, right? Once I read a piece, I forget where, but it was talking about, well, once people have seen, once people have, have gone through this process uh, of watching Donald Trump be tried, then it's going to change public opinion. I, I kind of doubt it. Uh, I think people know. I think people know Donald Trump is a bad guy. I think some of them like that he's a bad guy and believe that he, what did he say? I'm, I'm your vengeance. Mm -hmm. uh, retribution? Retribution, retribution, whatever. It was not, it was not a, it was not good news. Uh, but that Donald Trump is their, uh, their bad man, their strong man. And then there are others who make the calculation and say, okay, he's a bad guy. He lies, he cheats, he steals, he does anything for power. But the Democrats are worse and their policies are worse. And I can, I, I would rather live under Donald Trump's 
iron rule than that of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. This, of course, is dependent on to take it all the way back to your point. If you are in a monoculture and you are consuming media that says there's problems here, sure. But let's talk about that for nine seconds and then talk about how much worse everybody else is. And as I said to a cable news host one time when I was doing some pub, uh, I said, do you want me to tell you you're a better journalist than Sean Hannity? Congratulations. You've done it. You, <laughs> you, have, you have climbed to the top of the mountain uh, and you are a superior journalist than Sean Hannity. Now what are you going to do? And I think that's the, the question that America in, in the public space is now being confronted with. Okay, everybody sucks. Everything's terrible. It's all a disaster. Now what do you want to do? Okay, let's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you what all these supposedly hopeful signs and green shoots of people uh, growing up are, but um, maybe we'll save that for dessert. Some sort of rankish punditry questions. Mm -hmm. So uh, Nate Silver is a piece in the New York Times today, what to make of Biden's polling, all this. Um, my takeaway from a very quick read, as I was literally heading down the stairs to do this, is that Minorities are trending at the, a minority of minorities are trending increasingly towards Republicans or away from Democrats. Mm -hmm. It's not that Democrats won't get 80%, 90% of the black or, or of the black vote and, and a significant majority of the Hispanic vote. It's that neither will show up at the, not at the margins that they need them to, for those disparities to, to, to matter. The question I have is, A, do you see things differently? And B, all of this talk about how Biden can obviously beat Donald Trump. How much of it do you buy and what don't you buy? I, am, I, I lament the decision by the Wall Street Journal uh, to retain Do one of Donald Trump's pollsters as their Republican pollster because it, it deprives me of a easy and happy reliance on what was formerly a top top drawer polling effort. That team is now at NBC News. They broke up with the Wall Street Journal and the Wall Street Journal's got Tony Fabrizio. So you think it's, a, I mean, I've, there's a lot of this chatter on Twitter. Uh, uh, our friend Steve Kornacki was pushing back on some of it. You think that Fabrizio actually rigged the poll in some no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not alleging a diabolical scheme. What I'm saying is, every time I look at those numbers, I see Tony Fabrizio, and I go, "Man, ah, what are the what's the house effect here? What are the what are the things?" I mean, the the overall, it's a little got a little Trump lean in the numbers, but overall, they're in line. Like they've got Joe Biden at like forty or forty one percent approval, and the real number or the average number is like forty two and a half or something. So it's it's not like it, this is not a Rasmussen. Uh, javelin sailing across whatever it's I'm just saying for me as a consumer it's a bummer because I can't uh, I can't slip into that like a like a warm bath like I'd like to but we do have the National Opinion Research Center uh, poll uh, from the University of Chicago that they do with the Associated Press and if you descend into the particular of that poll so you start out with basically a head-to-head -head race between Trump and Biden, uh, uh, or uh, a tied race between the two. 
and it's 37, 35 or whatever, whatever it is. It's, it's a tie um, with loads and loads and loads of undecided. When you dive in, what you find is think, think, of, think of the magnitude of the fact that Donald Trump has had a 51% very unfavorable rate for a, uh, to adding in somewhat unfavorables to a 61% negative view. Uh, 10 points worse than Biden, but he's 15 points worse on very unfavorable. No one thinks Donald Trump could win a popular vote majority in the United States, but we don't care about what the popular vote is. We care about the states. Um, but at, at those kinds of un, very unfavorable, and by the way, those numbers are substantially unchanged since Trump left office. The sharply negative view of Donald Trump. Now, the problem for Joe Biden is that Biden's negatives are way up. They're not as high as Trump's, but they're way up. And you talk about um, non-white voters. Very often when we talk about non-white voters, it's, we're actually talking about a socioeconomic question more than we're talking about a question of race or culture. Because the truth is that black and Hispanic voters are overrepresented uh, in working class or poor part of uh, sec- sectors of the electorate. If you have a crash, right, if there is a big recession, who feels it first? Rich people. If you have inflation that lingers and lingers and lingers, who is the last to get better? Poor people, right? Um, the less disposable income you have, the more you hate high gas prices, the more you hate high food prices, the more those things grind on you. And the very slow easing of inflation over time is a killer for Joe Biden with working class voters. It's just, it, it's not a complicated, it, th- th- there's no... You don't need a, a, a separate decoder ring to figure out what's the problem here. The problem here is inflation hits poor people, poorer people hardest, and inflation has been a persistent problem. If you are a progressive, particularly our white brothers and sisters in the progressive community, will say it's because of social justice reasons. I, I tend to disagree and think that. So, what I wrote for my Tuesday column in the dispatch is basically in the economy for history says voter perceptions of the economy will harden and be set by basically June of next year. If the economy, that was an election on Papa Bush, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, And, and there's lots of scholarship to support it too, about when voters, so voters, not surprisingly wait the second two years of a president's term much more heavily in terms of the economy than they do the first two. The, uh, the attitudinal shift, barring, of course, a crash or whatever, the Republicans experience in 2008, uh, attitudes about the economy firm up by the summer. And if Biden can, it, not if he can, if he is favored by Fortuna and the inflation eases uh, unemployment stays very low and buying the buying power of working class Americans goes up, that will ease a lot of those problems. But, uh, and in the battle for those suburban voters, in the battle for those more affluent voters, 
I, you've heard me say it many times, uh, but it's too good for me to abandon yet, even as we move away from it. It's the Biden Yunkin voter that will determine the election, right? The, the people who are attitudinally conservative, center right, right of center, low taxes, safe streets, the, the breadbasket of Republican success going back, going back to Eisenhower, right? Those voters would like to have a different president. And they voted against Donald Trump. They moved. I forget what the final number was, but it was seven or eight percent of Glenn Youngkin's margin over Terry McAuliffe came from Biden voters, mostly men. And those voters, if they are faced with and this is why the Hunter Biden stuff is so consequential for Joe Biden. Joe Biden is now perceived and it's not going to change as too old and too fuddled to be the president of the United States, that he is unfit for office. Democrats believe that they'll be able to say, but Donald Trump is more unfit for office. He's a criminal. Uh, he's a danger. Joe Biden is an attractive nuisance, right? His, his infirmity creates problems, but Donald Trump is a, is a criminal who will shred the Constitution. Uh, what did he say? I will suspend, we need to suspend the Constitution for a period of time so that I can have power. And they're betting that that will be sufficient. If Joe Biden is found to have been skanky around the Hunter Biden's weird buck raking uh, corruption. This will dramatically undercut Democrats' core argument. And what Republicans are hoping is that they will get to next fall, to this point a year from now. And they'll say, yeah, they're both crooks. They're both corrupt. Uh, but Trump will cut my taxes and Trump will Trump, Trump will be better for me and my pocketbook faced with these two unappealing issues. I'll revert to Trump uh, because Biden is, isn't any morally or uh, reliably better. And I'll take the guy who I think I would rather live. I'll, I'll choose the corrupt autocracy under, under which I would prefer to live that would benefit me and my family. So um, it was true at least six weeks ago or five, a month ago. I remember seeing a poll that said if you forced all of the people who didn't want either of them to run. So they dislike both Biden and Trump. But if forced to choose, they break, they would break like three out of five, four out of five for Biden instead of Trump. Is that still true? Do you think that holds? I think that's true. I think if the, if you conducted the election today, I think that Joe Biden would win. And I think he would, I think he would probably win in a slightly more decisive factor uh, than before. And I think that would be true in Pennsylvania. And I think that would be true in Michigan. I think it would be true in Wisconsin. We have the results of 2022 to guide us. And the results of 2022 which, of course, is really useful for talking about these voters mm -hmm. because midterm elections are lower turnout elections. Uh, and but this was a big turnout. For it, was, midterm, it, was right? a, it was a big turnout, but it wasn't it did not repeat the same thing of like climbing, climbing, climbing. The uh, 2018 midterms saw turnout greater than the president equal to or greater than the presidential elections in like 1988, 1992. It was crazy. It was a 50% turnout in midterm. But this was did not do that. I forget what the final number was, but it was, it, it, the, it eased down a little bit. In a midterm electorate, those suburban persuadables, that 15% of the electorate or so, that is up for grabs to any significant degree. What did those voters do? 
I use the example of Ted Budd in North Carolina uh, and Brian Kemp in Georgia. Very conservative cats, right? Like pro-life, real, real pro-life, real, real, all this stuff. They want handling. And those same voters selected with precision scalpels against wackadoodle Trumpos, right? Uh, not you, Mehmet Oz, not you, Herschel Walker, not you, Carrie Lake, though the Democrats gave her a real wide opening in Arizona with their weak, weak nominee. But you can go around the country and you could track it. Oh, okay, these voters broke. And if you think about the sophistication of an electorate that says, Brian Kemp, yes, Herschel Walker, no, right? That's interesting. And the encouragement for Democrats is that even as, and you see the numbers in the very early generic ballot test for preference for control of the House, Republicans doing well. Uh, remember, Republicans have sort of a built-in advantage because of the map and because of turnout tendencies, so that in a, a tie race, they're probably going to win the House. If the, if the generic ballot's even for the House, you can expect the Republicans to have at least a small majority. You can see how the outcome most likely, uh, and not by a large probability, but the outcome most likely is one that a lot of Republicans would be very comfortable with, which is Donald Trump is renominated, loses, but Republicans take the Senate, right? They got a great map and uh, West Virginia and Montana look like uh, pretty easy money. Ohio, uh, depending on what they do, Arizona, there's a lot of balls in the hopper and they feel good about their chances to win the United States Senate. The House, I mean, you know, look, if Trump loses a massive uh, popular vote victory again, if he loses by 10 million, you know, nine or 10 million votes, or something crazy. If that happens, it's very hard to break through and have the, the party that loses the popular vote win the House. But it's happened. It happened in 2020. So the scenario that a lot of Republicans would like, and you can hear them t like uh, the, is in uh, and tapping on, you know, <laughs> tapping on the wall. Or is that Kessler? Anyway, James Stockdale, James Stockdale. We have to nominate Trump because otherwise we won't win. West Virginia, Ohio, we, we, need, we need Trump on the ballot to get the Bubba's out. We got to have Trump because if we put some other Republican on the ballot, it'll depress turnout with that, the, the modern day prairie populace. It, it will hurt our turnout with them so much. We got to nominate Trump, but he'll probably lose the general election and we'll finally be done with him. And we can, we can be happy with it, Speaker McCarthy and Senate Majority leader, question mark. I mean, we don't need to get deep in the weeds in this, but that is just such an unbelievably freaking irresponsible, risky gambit, given how bad I think a Trump yeah. presidency would actually be. And given how, I mean, I just wrote my LA Times column about this, like the McConnell stuff should be this incredible warning to the Democrats, right? So let's take, Democrats at their word. Let's take, I mean, let's take McConnell out of his word. You know, and as you know, I, I'm, I'm generally a fan of Mitch McConnell's. This is all due to a concussion. He's getting better, but it takes a long time for someone at his age to, to recover from a fall. Right. Which is true, right? Whether that's what's going on with him neurologically and physically is a different question. And, and, the, and the people I talk to who have counseled with him off camera all say he's fine. He's, he's 
popping along. He's he's uh, unchanged. He sounded fine yesterday with the beginning of the Senate. So right. like, I, 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 I'll but credit all that. So let's just say that that's true. It's a it's post concussion recovery time. Old people fall down. Oh yeah, um, you could look it up. Joe Biden. So I'm a broken record on this point on here since we're talking about things we're we'll broken records about. It drives me crazy when Joe Biden's people or he say he knows how to beat Donald Trump. He did it before. He's got the playbook. It's like we won't have a pandemic that justifies campaigning from your basement in 2024. Right. I mean, like there was a reason why Biden could get away with not being on the campaign trail, with not running a traditional anything like a traditional campaign that will not apply in the same way in, in 2024. And even if, even so presidents move around a lot, they go down those little stairs yeah. off of, of planes a lot. There are wires around a lot. And if, if the president of the United States is one fall away from having moments like yeah. Mitch McConnell's had, that is an incredibly risky thing to do. And so I agree, look, I agree with you. I mean, it seems sort of obvious. the, Democrats are running a guy that most Americans, and look, it's most Americans, right? Oh, no, most think, Democrats. Yeah, most Democrats think he's unfit because of his age. So he's medically unfit. And most Americans think that Donald Trump is characterologically unfit. Right. And they think that between those two brands, the Democrats win. And I think that's absolutely true for the popular vote. I am not convinced that if Biden has a fall in late summer, early fall, that it is enough to win Michigan. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, these battleground states where we know you only need like 30, 40,000 votes to tip the electoral college. Oh, and you can see the ad. Kamala Harris, right? The, the, here, here's Joe Biden splayed out on the ground. And then here's Kamala Harris. You ready for, you're, you're not voting for Joe Biden, you're voting for Kamala Harris. This becomes very unstable space. When I say that that's the most likely outcome, that's a straight line projection. And I don't dig straight line projections. There's a lot that's going to happen in the next year. There is so much that will transpire in the next year. Um, and maybe this is, we're going to stay where we're going to stay on the path that we are economically. We're going to stay on the path that we are from, uh, as it relates to Ukraine, as it relates to China. Maybe we're going to stay on the path with the uh, Donald Trump's support among Republicans. We're going to stay on the path with all those things and things will project forward. And if that happened, Right. People age in in chunks, in tranches. And maybe Biden has is aged to where he's he can there, that there'll be stasis at this point. Uh, if that's if that were the case, then Joe Biden will probably win. But as you say, there's a million things that could transpire in either direction that could when you have an election, when you have an electorate that's so narrowly balanced. Right. And one of the problems to the point of the great Yuval Levin uh, is this is what happens when you have a narrowly divided country for so long, right? When you don't get a landslide, when you don't get to clean out the deadwood, when you don't get the parties forced to reimagine themselves. What made Bill Clinton possible in 1992 were three successive whippings, right? The Democrats had taken three just humiliating losses, first to surprise defeat of an incumbent. Then they lost 49 states. And then they lost 40 states. And by 1992, Democrats were willing to act anew and think anew and choose a moderate and say, we got to do something. We have to we have to do something. And for these two parties, the signals that they keep getting in very close elections 
is keep doing what you're doing. We can't afford to try anything different because we've got to just hold into this space. Part of this is the, the, the major deficiency in the thinking of many of the, uh, I don't know what, you know, the reverse neo, the neolibs or whatever. Well, that's already taken. But the major deficiency in the thinking of people who say, once we, once people know about Donald Trump, right, once they understand about Donald Trump and, and who he is, that the scales will fall from their eyes and they will do that, is that the Republican Party would say, there's a, and just as the, to create the parallel track here, there's nothing immoral that Democrats are doing in renominating Joe Biden. If you think Kamala Harris is fit, right, if you think that she's suitable to be the president of the United States, you want to run Joe Biden again, maybe it's bad for the country, maybe it's bad for your party, maybe it's an unwise choice, but it's not morally dubious. For Republicans, there is moral duty involved, right? When you have a person who has tried to steal a second term, when you have a person who has used any means necessary to clutch power, when you have a person who has, you know, I, uh, who's promised vengeance, who has done all of these things, the morally appropriate response would be to say, who's promised vengeance. <laughs> and <laughs> it, just to be clear, this was, this was the duty of Democrats when FDR was seeking a third term too. This is the duty of a party is to say, hey, look, uh, we appreciate what you're doing, but we, have, uh, we are custodians of something more than just a ballot line. We, we have an obligation to the Republic and you can't do what you want to do. You can't run for a third, certainly not a fourth term. Uh, you can't, uh, Trump's action was obviously much more monstrous, but it's the principle holds, which is sometimes you have to say no, and that we'll lose, we'll probably lose. And what the quarter of Republicans who are staunchly anti-Trump and what a lot of Democrats and independents are failing to grasp is that the moral reasoning inside the majority of the Republican Party has already taken place. Right. They have already said, well, everything is so bad and the other t other side is so bad and everything is so terrible that, you know what, I don't care. Now, will that soften over time? But the idea that there would be a a um, ethical, a, 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 a great revival that would sweep through the Republican Party and that these voters would say, whoa, this is too much. I can't do it. And when I hear people say, well, if only someone had said or done this, if only so-and-so had attacked him in this way, if only so-and-so. Now, outside of the choice of the Senate, the failure of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, you raised many uh, good points about his service and the way that he constrained Trump in, in quiet ways. The, fa the failure of the Republican Party in the impeachment to stand up for the honor, not of their own party, but of the Senate and of the Congress, right? No, we, we blew it in impeachment. Blew it. Uh, who's the guy that does the Revolutions podcast? Oh, if you hadn't asked, I'd be able to tell you his name in a heartbeat. Um, well, I just finished his book about the middle Roman Republic, and it's called The Storm Before the Storm. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. And let me tell you, it's going it, if to, you, if you read it, it will freak you out. You will get real freaked out because, uh, as he points out, he wrote the book. Mike Duncan. Mike Duncan. He, uh, I always confuse him with the former chairman of the Republican National Committee from Kentucky. But we think about Caesarism and we think about how the Republic fell because Caesar crossed 
the uh, Rubicon and this and that, that. But what he plots out is the, the rot and the decay that took place among elites in the middle Roman Republic and how they, be, they were unable to rise above their politics and unable to rise above their faction and stand up for things. In the history of the United States, the, and th- this is where Democrats' hopes rest. In the history of the United States, it will be notable that Joe Biden is a fogey. It will be noted that the country elected a person who was physically, I, you know my analogy, like watching a dog walk across a freshly waxed linoleum floor. It's hard, right? It's, it's hard, Joe Biden, hard to watch. Um, the, it, will, it will be noted, right? And it's not a healthy sign for your country when that's the case. But it will forever be noted. Historians for centuries will talk about January 6th. They will talk about what Trump tried to do. And then they will talk about the failure of the Senate to act. And that's, that is forever. And the hope for Democrats is that as Election Day approaches, those voters right now, we don't, I've, I've said this many times to you, and I will just say it again quickly, which is persuadable voters are less ideological. They're just, le- they think about it less. They spend less time thinking about it. So when you say to voters, Trump or Biden, and they're like, pass, nah, nah, bro, not going to do that. And in the end, the most precious of all voters are undecided likely voters, because most undecided voters just don't vote. I can't make, I can't make up my mind, so I'm not going to buy, this isn't a priority for me. But that little clutch, that 5% or something of voters who say, I vote every time, and I don't know what I'm going to do. They're the deciders, right? They get to choose. And can Joe Biden persuade them that he is fit enough, right? Not fit, but fit enough uh, to execute the office of the, pre- execute the duties of the presidency. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up by saying this. The Republican Party represents nothing so much as a suicide pact right now, in which there is enough dissension within the party to guarantee that whomever the Republicans nominate will lose in the general election. There are enough Republicans who will never vote for Donald Trump to guarantee that Donald Trump would lose in the general election. And there are enough MAGA, super nationalists, whatever, right, who would not vote for Tim Scott. They would not come out. They would not say, well, it was a good fight, but we lost to that traitor, Mike Pence, and now we will don our, don our uh, sparkly elephant lapel pins and go vote as loyal Republicans. So that's the internal problem that is the Democrats' greatest advantage, the two great advantages for Democrats. And I agree with you 100%. It is by no means assured. The probabilities here are very narrow. Um, but the two great comforts for Democrats, Donald Trump's 61% unfavorability rating with a fi- 63% unfavorability rating with a 51% very unfavorable, uh, which says that the undecideds would break for uh, the incumbent. Just a, methodologically, just a question for you, right? I understand all the analogies that like you only need a small sample because it's like if the stew is properly cooked and mixed, all you use is a spoonful to taste what to understand what the whole pot tastes like. I get it. Blah, blah, blah. Statistics. Yay. That kind of number, 51% strong disfavor. Right. 
do you think that that is all that reassuring if if the game is really boils down to these same five battleground states? So the, we care about the battleground states because they are roughly they roughly track the nation as a whole, right? I use a a bucket analogy, which is to say, mark all 50 states in the District of Columbia on the side of a bucket and rank them from, if you use the partisan uh, vote index of, and the partisan vote index is how much more Republican or how much more Democratic is a state or a district than the nation as a whole. You average out recent results and say, okay, how, how much more Republican or how much more Democratic? So the country is more Democratic than Republican by a little bit, right? Um, so the as you fill up the bucket, you put D.C. first, right? It's the most Democratic. Then you put Rhode Island and you keep moving up and you keep moving up and you go all the way up to the top of the bucket to uh, Wyoming, West Virginia, Oklahoma, the most Republican states. As you fill the bucket, you cannot cover... Pennsylvania without having covered Georgia. You can't cover Kentucky. If a Democrat won Kentucky, it wouldn't be because something weird was happening in Kentucky. It would mean that all the states, almost every state at the margins, when it's close, when states are close, if Joe Biden won Kentucky, we could rapidly assume that he has won 42 states or whatever, because all the states that are less Democratic than that are probably going to come into his column. We care about these states. No, all the ones that are more Democratic than Kentucky will go into his column. Oh, he's already filled. If you fill the bucket to the 40th line, you've already got the other 39. Um, What makes Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, eh. uh, but this little hand, we could expand the number out to eight or 10 states. Minnesota, maybe, maybe. Well, so that's what I was going to say. Elasticity. Um, so what makes those states so important is that they're fairly closely uh, divided and there's a considerable amount of political elasticity. These are states that often switch back and forth between Republican and Democrat governors. Uh, they have uh, mixed congressional delegations. They're not one thing. Whereas Minnesota is like Texas. Minnesota is like Texas's uh, Democratic counterpart, which is to say it's not that Democratic, but Lord, it is consistently Democratic. Texas is not that Republican. It's like five points Republican, but it's not elastic. And if you contrast Texas with Georgia, Georgia is a very elastic state. Right. Georgia shows a wide variance in terms of of being a red state of how willing it is. So these are states that are politically elastic and fairly narrowly divided. The idea that um, if if Donald Trump has a and by the way, on the sample part. We like the NORC poll. From the University of Chicago, because it is really well done and has a huge sample size, and it has consistent methodology over time, right? It's, this is, the, it, 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 it's primo stuff, right? What, the, the, what they've got uh, in terms of how they find, identify, and survey their voters is really good, and the samples are really big. Heisenberg's blue meth of Poland. That's right. This, it's, this is good. The, the NORC stuff is really, really good. And the idea that Donald Trump would be at a 51% hard disapproval uh, in the nation as a whole, what's his best case scenario in Michigan? 
right? 47, right? He might, it might be these states because the, the, the country is more democratic than Republican. These states are a little more Republican than the country as a whole, but they're pretty close to the center beam. And in our nationalized, homogenized culture, the idea of that you have states in New England that stay Republican uh, and states in the Deep South that stay Democratic, that mostly doesn't happen. Uh, and I think I give Donald Trump a three out of five chance to win the Republican nomination. And I give him right now about a one in five chance to win the general election. Now, 20% ain't nothing, right? Uh, 20% ain't nothing. And uh, Donald Trump came close in 2020. And he might do it again, which, of course, brings you back to the moral duty of Republicans. Yeah. I mean, no one gets on a plane if they're told it has a one in five chance of crashing. Four out of five, we're going to make it to <laughs> Kansas City, but maybe we won't. In our time, a little time left, I, I want to switch gears just slightly. Um, uh, the Fair Jessica and I were stumbled on Fox and Friends the other morning, and I was watching them talk to a country music singer before they had a country music thing in the plaza or wherever they do that and it dawned on me like it is really like i grew up in manhattan right so like i've always thought it was really weird to have the this thing on you know on 7th avenue 7th avenue 8th avenue 7th avenue 6th avenue 6th avenue sorry avenue of the americas yeah new yorkers aren't allowed to say that and um (laughs) always weird to have this like ostentatiously sort of Southern reds, definitely red state, good old boy, you know, green zone in right. central Manhattan. Right. And because he always do these Fox, you know, concerts and all that. And they're outside doing barbecue and they're talking to the Bubba's and all that. And I got no problem with the Bubba's and I got no problem with the country music. And that's all great. My point is, is it's just a weird uh, incongruity given who they're aiming their, the cultural pitch that they're making and where the show actually is made, right? And, and you know how there's this argument um, that I'm somewhat sympathetic to about moving cabinet agencies out to the rest of the country, you know, Department of Energy should be in, you know. West Virginia. West Virginia. Well, I mean, you guys think everything should be in West Virginia. <laughs> That's right. Bring it on down. Interior should be in Colorado, whatever. So right. get, you know, get the bureaucracy out of Washington and the group that can Washington. Just kind of curious what you think, as we were talking about it for a little bit, like if, if, if first of all, Fox should be broadcast out of Nashville now, right? So many other conservative things are moving to Tennessee. It's where um, that's sort of the valence of what they're going for to begin with. And if you required all on-air people to be, to, to, to broadcast most of those shows out of Lexington, Kentucky, or out of Nashville, how many of them do you think would be perfectly happy with it? And how many of them do you think would be like furious at the proposition that they would have to go actually live in the part of the country that the shows are aimed at? Well, a lot of them already live in Florida or a lot of them already have. So if you were going to broadcast Fox and friends from the geographically appropriate place for their audience, they would be in Tampa. Okay. That's the, ca- the ratings, the numbers, the high, the, that's Tampa is the capital of the, the Tampa metro area is the capital of Fox America, right? Uh, Gulf Coast, Florida, 
older voter and the numbers reflect uh, that, you know, special report would beat uh, the uh, broadcast networks uh, for the evening news. That's where it's at. Fox is a Florida facing uh, enterprise with, yes, some priest cowboy hat action for the hillbillies for my folks. And there's some stuff, there's, there's a lot of Texas upsucking going on, but this is a Florida based thing. See, but what's weird about that? I mean, but it, it's gotta be a specific demographic in Florida, right? Because Florida is actually a shockingly diverse state and you're not getting a lot of like, you know, Cuban kind of themed stuff. You're, you what, what you're, what you're getting is content aimed at older white Americans. Uh, and it's not because it's nothing about Florida. I'm just saying that's where the highest concentration go to the villages and you will find, right. Go to the villages and you will find. And something that people in politics and television know, or at least should know, this is why, for example, Trump's Tucker Carlson decision was, I understand why he didn't want to debate, but why doing a Twitter stream was a bad choice uh, in terms of reaching his audience. Now, he, he would say, well, I'm not down. My numbers are still the same, so it didn't hurt me. But the fallacy there is the older you are, the more likely you are to watch TV and the more likely you are to vote. Both of those things are true. The reason that local news will make a quadrillion bajillion dollars in the coming year is that the last place to reliably reach likely voters Local news, local TV, that's, that's where you got to go for the, as I wrote the other day, there's a rough, very rough rule of thumb. The percentage turnout for an age group is roughly equal to the number of their age. Half of 50 year olds vote, 60% of 60 year olds vote, 70% of 70 year olds vote. And this is how, and it, and it goes the other way too, right? 40 year olds, 30 year olds, 20 year olds. So you can see this, this ramp that goes up in terms of voter participation. And the same as the, the, one of the things that benefited Trump so enormously and is breaking our politics is th that young people and old people have an almost completely different media consumption habits. Uh, and we talk about cord cutting, we talk about streaming, we talk about all of that stuff, but the electorate and the television audience tips real old, right? It tips real, real old. Um, and if you're Fox, that's who you need. And by the way, that's who you need if you're MSNBC. That's, that's who everybody needs because that's who's watching TV. And I think the, um, I think most of the people who work at Fox, a lot of them have homes in Nashville or in the South or in Florida or wherever they go. Um, I think most of them would be very content to go live in the Gulf Coast of Florida. They might live up in Rosemary Beach or up there, but they would be perfectly content to go live on the Gulf Coast of Florida because in the miracle of American capitalism, everything you want is everywhere, right? It's not like you have to live in New York to find good restaurants and do the things that you want to do. You can live in Tampa and you can kick it in Tampa and enjoy yourself. Yeah, and Tampa also is... Got a lot of New York transplants. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Last thing I just was going to say, I meant to say it earlier, is I don't know if they'll have any effect. I know that they will make a large number of people very, very rich who don't deserve to be rich. Certainly don't deserve to be richer than me. Um, but 
a large number of people are going to make some really fantastic negative ads about Donald Trump in 2024. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how, I mean, I assume there's going to be focus group to death, right? So like, and since you're talking about how not undecided voters are less ideological, does the sore loser thing work more than the, uh, he's going to have concentration camps thing or whatever it is, you know? I think, I think the most, so the, the question about Trump is how much of a primary will he actually have? Will there be hundreds of millions of dollars spent against Donald Trump in the primaries, which have knock-on effects to the general election? If Republican PAC donors and these folks conclude around by before Christmas, well, this thing's over, right? We can't, we can't do it. We're going to skip it. That really works to Trump's benefit, right? If the if those voters, that quarter of the Republican Party, isn't wound up for a fight with Trump through the primaries, that that works in Trump's favor because the negative messaging for primaries carries over into the general election, uh, and so do the enmities. The for the general election, the best argument against Trump, I think, would be to say that he that January 6th and Donald Trump is reckless. He's dangerous. He is a dangerous, reckless person who hates the Constitution. And I don't think you can have a policy argument with Donald Trump. Joe Biden wouldn't probably win a policy argument with Donald Trump. Um, I think the argument with Donald about Donald Trump is to say that he is too dangerous. He's too scary. He's too unstable uh, to be president again. And the what we know, I hear Republicans say, well, nobody cares about January 6th anymore. Those videos, man, those videos and Trump, the arrogant uh, Trump, the power mad Trump, the corrupt. Those are the ones because essentially the argument in a general election with Biden would be, yep, Biden stinks. No doubt about it. we we check. We got it. This guy is can't find his hat. But Donald Trump is too dangerous. And if you remember the closing ad from the Obama people in 2012, it was really good. It was a black and white shot of the Resolute desk in the Oval Office, empty. And the camera pushes in on the desk. And it asks you the question, do you want Willard Mitt Romney to be the president? Not do you like, do you like Barack Obama, but do you want Mitt Romney to be in that seat? And, you know, you'll hear it a million times in the, in the next 14 months, Joe Biden loses a referendum election. He wins a choice election and they have to do everything they can to push it into a choice election. A lot of Americans are like Mike Pence. I mean it. Uh, they're like Mike Pence in this way. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. We could put up with a lot of stuff from Donald Trump and he's wacky and whatever. But speaking of Rubicons being crossed, what he did to try to steal a second term is it's like, okay, no. Now, Mike Pence, as our friend and colleague Kevin Williamson pointed out, uh, said Donald Trump should never be president again, but I'll vote for him, <laughs> but, but I'll support him. Uh, but I think there's a lot of Americans who said, okay, that was too much. I could put up with a lot, but that's too much. We heard from some people in Pence's orbit about that Kevin Williamson column, so people should check it out. It took the Kevin Williamson's capacity to take the bark off of people in a 
absolutely deadpan. Well, not even with regret, not even with high-minded regret, but not with any glee, just like, well, I'm just going to set this here and you all can think about that. I'm going to, I'm going to go over here. Bye. Yeah. I mean, my, my single favorite, I mean, Kevin is one of the best writers I know and competing with him always brings out something better in me. Uh, we once had a great debate at NR um, about what would be better for ending all life on earth, the return of Chitulu, the, what's his name? The ancient evil demon. Yeah. The octopus face guy, the old one. Yeah. He, he was on team Chitulu and I was on team uh, sweet meteor of death. Well, you, you would prefer sweet meteor of death, right? Because you, you're getting up, you're having your coffee, and kaboom, you're all done. Right. I like to pull the band off, Band-Aid off yeah. slow, not over 10,000 years excruciatingly. And, um, but, you know, shockingly, even though I'm the guy named Goldberg, he's more of a smiting and wrath kind of guy. Um, he, he is, and he, w- and he has the disposition to be able to process, accept, and eventually enjoy uh, the demise of humanity under Chihulu. I think that's right. But uh, Lovecraft, I was trying to think of his name. Um, but he, uh, I still think his best post was after, I think it was after the nomination of Donald Trump. He just did this little corner post at, at National Review saying, I'm just dropping this here so I can refer back to it later. You guys <laughs> chose this. You yeah. chose to do this. And um, it's a useful thing to be confident in your, I told you so's years in advance. I mean, I was confident too. I just didn't have the foresight to actually just do that. And I've always been envious that I didn't get that out there. Anyway, um, we chose this and this is why the, the living will envy the dead. <laughs> Commentary will never beat us at crushing morosity when we want to lean into it. That's right. That's right. Brother Starwalt, thank you very much for uh, coming back on. Always appreciate it. You have a, you know, it's an open door policy when it comes to you on this, this August podcast. I am happy to be in your convoy anytime, Bandit. And, uh, you know, maybe what we should do is have a special episode of The Remnant or a special episode of Glop dedicated entirely to smoking the Bannet Arcana. I would even submit to you a screening of Smokey and the Bandit with a director's cut analysis of that. I, if I could do that with Pod, I would truly that I, I would feel that I had finally achieved the kind of vocational success that I've always dreamed of. Mystery dispatch theater. Kind of I like thing. it. I'm yeah, into that. Yeah, I like it too. All right, my friend. Keep hope alive. It just <laughs> extends the pain longer. That's right. <laughs> okay, so Brother Starwald has left the studio. It's always great to have him on, in, 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 in part because he can just basically carry me. And but for those of you who feel like you didn't get enough Starwald, and, and really, who could possibly get enough Starwald? He will be on this week's episode of the dispatch podcast with me and i assume steve hayes uh you know sarah's still um on maternity leave we're uh uh, lucky to have them and it'll be good and there'll be words and they'll be in in clever and insightful order and uh other than that uh i'm looking forward to all the comments to the uh marathon length podcast that conversation i had with tom nichols That's all I got, really. So subscribe to The Dispatch, and I'll see you next time. Bro. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Podcast.